I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Welcome to part two of the incredible and inspiring interview with well-respected Hollywood executive Jonathan Koch. This riveting story will amaze you with his narrow escape from death, his fortitude, his never-give-up winning attitude, and the remarkable feats of science that helped him overcome a deadly illness. As he recounts his story of survival, recovery, rehabilitation, and triumph, be prepared to be amazed. Let's continue. Well, we covered my business life, you know, with Steve and we covered my marriage. So Jennifer and I had moved into a a new house that we were in together and we had, you know, started our life. I had sold the company, which in many ways was very positive, but in some ways the rules of my life had changed. But when we sold the company, I felt an incredible obligation and responsibility to the company that bought us to perform at the very, very highest level that I could. And I always thought that I was doing that. I thought there's a new level, but I was really distressed. You know, I had a lot of distress in my life because the rules had changed very quickly and there was a whole different structure in my life and I was still trying to make sense of it. So I used to walk around the neighborhood and tell Jennifer that I could feel my bones being pulverized by how I'm not digesting this all very well. I'm not processing it all very well because I feel that I have to be superhuman. 24 hours a day. So, you know, over a period of time, I, things were going great. But in this one particular day, I was getting ready to leave for Real Screen, which was a, is a Washington, D.C.-based conference where television producers go, buyers and sellers. It's like speed dating for producers and buyers. Like every 15 minutes, you're out talking about your shows to different buyers and so forth and so on. It's also extraordinarily fun and social. So I woke up Monday morning and I told Jennifer, something that I don't think I've ever said before in my life, which is, I can't do it. I can't move. I feel like I've been hit by a truck. Could you get me in the shower and see if you could, you know, revive me? I have to be on a plane in a couple of hours. And my whole team has been up, you know, working their butts off, coming up with these opportunities and these shows. That's my team. Like, I can't allow them to go into battle without me, especially at the Super Bowl of being a reality producer. That is the Super Bowl. So Jennifer took me to a local hospital at six o'clock in the morning and they gave me some fluids and tested me for the flu. And then for some reason, they gave me a shot of morphine. I don't know why. I've never, you know, done drugs or I don't drink, like, you know, giving me a shot of morphine, you know, sent me through the roof. I mean, I felt so good. I I was so (laughs) happy. I didn't even know I could be that happy. But they let me leave and I walked out onto the street by myself. They just said, you can go. And I got up and walked out and I walked to a sign of a public storage place and I took a picture of it and I told Jennifer, this is where I am. Meanwhile, I'm entertaining the cars as they go by because I'm in such a great mood. And I got in the car and I told Jennifer, you know, I'm ready to go. I feel great. So I called my assistant Kaylee and I said, get me on the next plane out. She said, it's two o'clock. I said, okay. So Jennifer and I got me home. We've got all my stuff together and on my way to Washington. And I flew to Washington with somebody I think to this day was a 70 year old former business attorney who gave me the six hours of advice runway to runway on how to evolve into being an employee of a big corporation instead of being an 
entrepreneur of your own business. And I thought it was the greatest conversation I ever had. Rumor has it that I flew with a tiny blonde executive that I've known for a long really? time. Yeah, but I don't know. So I get to the conference. I see Steve and my whole team. It's midnight. And, you know, Steve takes one look at me. He goes, you look like shit. <laughs> so I said, yeah. And he said, you know, it's our first night here. Don't ruin it. Just go to bed. <laughs> so um, I did. I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I was feeling not great. And my feet were dragging. I felt very filled with concrete, if you know, that makes sense. And I went down to the floor because, you know, push through, push through. It's not about me. So I get down to the floor and it's packed with all the people that I know and most of them who I love. And, you know, I'm walking through there and I'm seeing four of everything. Like I cannot focus my vision. I'm dragging my feet. I'm just about to fall down in the middle of the conference. And I see this guy who I know, but we're not friends. In fact, we're in the middle of kind of an awful business conversation. <laughs> and I see him and I go up to him like he's my best friend in the whole world. And I shake his hand and I grab him by the back of the tricep, the overly familiar, like overly happy to see somebody who you're in war with and I'm literally holding on to him I mean to stand up because I can't I cannot stand up anymore and so I was able to get steadied for a minute and I heard Steve's voice you know from across the room so I was like using my hearing to kind of hone in on where he was so I went to a meeting with my beautiful friends at Discovery ID whom I love a lot but I didn't say a word because I couldn't, which I know is unusual. <laughs> so I think the meeting went well because luckily there were other people. And then I went to a meeting with one of the Annie networks who I'm super friendly with. And in the meeting, my vision just started leaving me almost completely. Like it was just so scattered. I, I was pitching and I saw three of the person and I just pitched to the one in the middle because I figured that was probably the right one. So I had to end the meeting early because I literally, I don't think I could stay conscious very much longer. So I just, you know, said thank you. And I ended like in the middle of a sentence, you know, the worst pitch I've ever done probably. And I got up and I started walking out and I stumbled on the way out. And Joan Harrison, who runs Scripted for Asylum, she saw me and she's the only real adult in our whole building. The rest of us are, you know, completely immature. <laughs> and Joan said, you have to go to the hospital. And immediately when she said it, you know, you get to the place where when you're not feeling well, you know when it's nothing. And you also know immediately and innately, yeah. like, this is a hospital thing. So she wanted to go with me. And I said, I'm going to go upstairs, Discovery Channel, give me these amazing slippers that I always brought with me everywhere while we were up in uh, Canada doing a, a producer's conference. And I went up to get my slippers because if you're going to be in the hospital for a few minutes, you got to have your discovery slippers. <laughs> so I went up to get them. And I almost, I've never said this out loud. I've never even said it to Jennifer because it just didn't seem important. But I laid down on the bed for a second because I just thought it would help. And if I hadn't been awakened by something outside, I probably would have died right there because it was going downhill very quickly. And I didn't know that, but really, you know, my tendency was I'm so tired and exhausted and this is not fun. I'm going to go to sleep. So I just sat down for a second while I was changing my shoes. And then I kind of laid back on the bed, almost like you would if you were going unconscious, like, you know, as you said, like pinhole, like, and I laid there, but something in the hallway smashed or some noise was made. And I got up and I went downstairs and I told Joan, I'm going to go by myself because I felt that she should stay back and do the job that we had come there to do. I got in a cab and I said, please take me to the closest hospital 
And he said, you know, it's George Washington University Hospital. So I went there, I checked in, nothing was really too wrong. I actually was starting to feel better. I was sitting, you know, waiting and there were a lot of people with like, you know, serious injuries and stuff that were in the emergency room who they felt was much more immediate and urgent than I was. And I agreed with them, but I was in the waiting room for quite a long time and I was working on my phone much I could. I was eating Stockwell cookies and drinking Powerade Zero and having a great time. I was sending selfies out to, you know... (laughs) People let him know that I was okay, and I was sitting next to a sign that said brain damage, and I just thought it was funny, so I was taking (laughs) pictures, you know. And then when they finally took me in, they started, you know, things were not going great, and um, I was starting to swell. Like, my whole face looked like I was 100 pounds heavier than I am, and, like, everything was just starting to swell. But my closest, one of my closest friends, Dan Hubbard, who owns the Reels Channel, he sent me a text message, and he said, how's the conference going? And I sent him a picture of me with, you know, oxygen in my nose and my giant face and tubes everywhere, and I said, not as well as I had hoped. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, And by then, I was starting to lose my mind because my body was in a situation where the oxygen was leaving my brain pretty quickly. I just wasn't getting enough oxygen. I was having heart failure and kidney failure and lung failure and I was dying. And so things weren't going well. So this amazing doctor who's my mortal enemy at the time, um, Dr. Lynn Abel, and she comes in and she's getting after me a little bit, you know, like she's she was very scientific. And of course, she understood things I didn't, but she was being very matter of fact with me. But I don't want the punchlines. I need explanation. I don't like punchlines. Right. And so I was being very obstinate and unpleasant in a way that's not very consistent with me. But uh, my feet were freezing cold in a way I couldn't describe to you. It's not like, you know, you're outside and your feet are cold. It's an internal thing. And it's maddening how cold they were. And my very close friend, Corey Abraham, who um, runs Program Made Oxygen, she had come over. She had found out what happened. She came over. My sister lives in D.C. and I had sent her a now famous among our circles text that said, do you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and she, I said, the good news is I'm in Washington. The bad news is I'm in ICU, which upset my sister because I hadn't told her I was there. I had planned on having dinner with her, but I didn't know what night. And so I didn't want it to be like a constant question, like, what night are we mm-hmm. doing? I just needed to find out what night there was a party I wasn't going to go to. And right. So I told her that. So she was at the hospital in 15 minutes. Jennifer called her parents and said, I don't know what's going on with Jonathan. He says he just has pneumonia because I heard somebody else had pneumonia in the hallway. So I picked up on it and said, oh, it's probably pneumonia because I didn't know what it was and I didn't want to bother anybody and I didn't know how terrible it was. So, you know, she called her parents, Tob and Robin, and they live in Pennsylvania and they drove like four hours to come see me and they were there pretty quickly and things got bad very fast. It was like getting hit by a train and because my mind wasn't right, I was very upset. I was very frustrated and I don't have a temper in real life, like, but I was acting badly and I finally, I told Dr. Abel, I'm like, I just wanted like a little something to drink. I'm literally dying of thirst. I can't even swallow. My throat is so dry. I just, she said, you're not getting any water. And I said, that's it. So I said, really mad yeah, at I was upset. And I said, you know what? I have been a decision maker in my life since I've been a really young person. And I am not going to stand for this treatment. I'm going to leave. And she said, you absolutely can leave, Jonathan. You have to sign something that says you're leaving against medical advice. And I just want you to know that by the time you get your stuff together and you get in the elevator and you go down the elevator and you get into the lobby and you get in a cab and you get wherever you're going, you'll probably be dead. So I sat down 
you know, I'm like, okay, she got my attention. I listened to her and things progressed pretty quickly. I started to lose my recall of all this pretty soon in this story. I can't really remember. I've been able to piece it together through other people, but I told Jennifer, you should come. It's pretty bad. And I had texted her that. And she said, I'm getting on a plane right now. And I wrote something like, let's make it happen, which is not something I would ever say. I have a business friend of mine who says that all the time. Like, it's his motto. Let's make it happen. And for some reason, I said that to her. And it was the last text I sent to her. And I was trying to stay conscious enough to see Jennifer. That was a big thing. So it wasn't going great. Everything was failing. You know, hazmat suits, the whole deal. Because they didn't know what it was. Nobody knew what it was. They just knew that I was in a process that I was actually dying. Like, that's the way your body acts when you're dying. Your feet and your hands lose oxygen first, and they turn black. They die. And your body does a good job, a smart job of shunting your blood to your brain and your heart, the things that you need to live, and you don't need your hands and feet to live. So that's where it begins. I didn't really know anything about that at the time. I just was freezing cold. They ended up putting me in a bed and, you know, to the description of Robin and Tom, Jennifer's parents, I was really agitated. I was really upset. I started kicking my feet, swinging my arms, you know, and really going crazy to the point where I got up and I tore everything out. I tore, you know, everything I could get off of me. Yeah. And I said, I'm leaving. I'm out. And Tom, who's Jennifer's dad, who's the most wonderful, amazing, kind person, he tried to stop me. And, you know, I'm a lot bigger than he is. And it got physical. He was, you know, screaming for help, you know, because not because I was attacking him, just because I was going to leave. So I guess three nurses came in. Dr. Abel came in and they dextered me to sleep. I couldn't breathe on my own. I had a breathing tube and, you know, those kinds of things. I just couldn't make it till when Jennifer was there. I think the whole thing from when I left real screen to when I was done basically was about 24 26 hours mm-hmm. something like that but the majority of that i spent being okay when i left the emergency room and got to icu i things were really hectic anyway so i was being pretty awful at times and dr abel said to me you're probably going to die tonight and you should connect with you know your loved ones so I mean, at the time, I didn't, it just made me mad and um, I felt upset, but it really helped me in a way because in the process, again, I wasn't really fearful, but in the process of that, the frustration of it was having to say goodbye to everybody. I didn't want to do that and I was willing to do it. And I obviously had texted Jennifer and I texted a couple of my friends, but when it came down to what she was really telling me was, please say goodbye to your daughter. Um, you know, I'm like, no, I can't. Like, I, I know this is ridiculous, but I thought of that movie, Dumb and Dumber, when, you know, Jim Carrey's asking that girl out and she says, and no, on certain terms, it's not going to happen. Not in a, you know, you have a one in a whatever chance. And he says, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to contact Ariana because she doesn't have to live through her father's death twice. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't have to live through it on a text. And then when it actually happens, like, she would have to deal with it if it happens. But until then, it's not a punch till it lands, and I'm just not going to die. I'm just, that's it. I'm just not going to because I don't want to have that conversation with her. That was literally how simplistic, you know, my thoughts were becoming. I'm not going to die because I don't want to have to tell Ariana I am. And I don't, you know, I don't think she should have to grow up without her daddy. Right. So they put me in a coma. Jennifer didn't make it there on time. It was a big disappointment to her. And I know the next number of days, there was very little chance that 
I was going to survive. I had less than a 10% chance of surviving. Nobody really knew what was going on. They process of elimination, tried everything. I had, you know, 30 bags of medication. They, they literally were treating me for everything. My hands and feet were starting to turn blue. Jennifer was going through some things that I've only recently learned about watching her video diaries um, on the 2020 that were just, you know, gut-wrenching and Awful. that nobody should have to go through. You know, while I was in a coma, I think people look at people in a coma and they think to themselves, well, at least they're resting now. At least they're not in pain now. Well, that's not, for me at least, and for a number of people that I've read about since then, that couldn't have been any further from the truth. That two and a half weeks was absolutely the worst time in my life by a lot, and my brain was on overdrive. So I was living in a a farmhouse in Maryland where I was being held captive, and um, I was laying on a wooden bench, much like you would see in a a gymnasium or something with slats, two slats, and and I was laying on there, and I had a piece of twine that was around my left shoulder, and I couldn't get up, but I kept thinking to myself, I'm so strong, like, why can't I get up? I have this little piece of twine that's holding me here, and I totally can't break it, and there was a family where they had giant faces and super sharp teeth, and they would only talk about me, they wouldn't talk to me, and I was behind this curtain and the fun part about it was that didn't turn out to be fun was there was a small glass of chocolate milk that was just out of my reach you know the condensation was coming down because it was so cold and I was so thirsty and I just couldn't reach it and so I was trying to get up to reach it and you know the first morning that I was there they pulled back the curtain and they were holding a milk crate and I got this feeling very much so that I somebody else had been there before me and that somebody else was going to be there after me like this was Mm. part of what they do they kidnap somebody they bring them here and they open the crate and they there were, you know, poisonous snakes in the crate and they would put them on me and they would have them bite me. What they were talking about during that time was that they wanted to know which one of these would kill their livestock. And so they were biting me on the face and they were biting me, you know, on the neck and on the chest mostly. And after I had been bitten, they would take all the snakes and they would wait to see if I could recover from it, what, you know, was happening. And then that happened every day, every morning that I would be there every day. And there were always different kinds of snakes. You know, maybe I watched too much the Discovery Channel, whatever, but I know every kind of them and, you know, whatever. And they were just, it was just a vicious, awful, terrible, painful experience that I was living, not like a dream where it happens to you in a flash and you wake up and you shake it off. It's like sitting here today, I can tell you that this experience won't be any more real to me than that one still is. So it, it really was, you know, the perception of my brain, that's what was going on. And so as the days went on, I started to feel like I was dying. I started to feel like I was getting weaker. My recovery was slower. So I started to feel that I wasn't going to be doing this much longer. So I'm laying there and I remember being um, in the room when my mom died. And I can remember that shallow breathing you do, you know, right before you die. And it's sporadic and shallow. And and I could hear doing I was doing that myself. I could hear it in my own you know body. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to die soon, really soon. And um, as soon as I thought that I was transported out of away from this farm and I was in this room I can only describe as a purgatory room, which was just a very empty, no temperature, no feeling of air, no humidity, nothing. It was just completely nondescript. There was a small drain in the middle of it like you'd find in a shower. And I could feel everything, you know, about my life in there, but nobody was there. So it was almost like your life flashing before your eyes, but there wasn't anything in there. But I could feel people who liked me and hated me and the best of times and the worst of times. And I could feel all of that around me. And as I was walking past the drain towards the door on the other side, 
um, a voice said to me, almost sounded like Steve, to be honest, but um, it was a very deep, very specific sounding male voice, too deep for me to imitate on my own. But, you know, it said to me, do you want to keep doing what you're doing? That was the question. Do you want to keep doing what you're doing? Of course, I immediately answered no, because who would want to lay on a bench and get bitten by poisonous snakes all the time? But somehow the voice knew me and knew I didn't quite understand the question. And so... I was asked, very specifically told, if you do decide you want to live, it'll be the most awful, painful, intolerable fight of your life every day for the rest of your life. But I understand fight. So he said fight. I heard fight. I said, okay. I mean, I have to say he wasn't wrong. (laughs) It's been 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 a a pretty challenging fight. But um, as soon as I answered that question, I was transported through this really dark, gross, black water all the way you know, through this sort of spectrum of light. And when I reached the top of it, probably coinciding with what was going on in the room, um, I came out of my coma and I, I was not at all able to communicate or anything. I, you know, had a breathing tube for a very long time and then they had to trach me because you can't keep a breathing tube. I, I was a mess and I, I just, I didn't have a voice. I couldn't speak or anything. But the only thing I wanted to do was marry Jennifer. I don't know why. We'd always decided well. we weren't going to get married <laughs> and we were just going to be what we were. We weren't going to get married but i don't know i woke up with this feeling like i just i just have to marry her and so her mom was near me and i tried to make that you know that i wanted to see jennifer and you know somehow i tried to communicate with her that whispering or something that i wanted to ask her to marry me so jennifer came in and she saw me and you know we got engaged for real life in that moment oh, she had made all these video diaries and she made them while i was in a coma so that she could tell me what happened or that I could watch it later. And if I did survive, you know, that I would have that. And the video diaries are amazing. But in one of the video diaries, we were watching together as we were preparing them for ABC and sort of making sure that, you know, we wanted to send them, you know, in one of the videos that happened near the middle of my coma, she said, all I really want to do is marry him, which was just so incredible. Like to, that just happened like a few days ago that we found out that. Wow. Um, wow. So we had that similar idea and the fight began after that. And um, they started talking to me about I had to survive first. I wasn't out of the weeds, right. but all credit goes to um, the incredible team at GW, of course. But there was an intern at the GW. He said to Dr. Abel, maybe this thing, HLH or Dr. Mike Seneff, they were both in it together. Dr. Mike Seneff said, I don't know that familiar with it. Can you get me the research? And they got the research and they kind of laid my symptoms on top of this. And they figured out that it was this like extraordinarily rare, especially in adults, it's more in kids, but like one in 20 million is the number that I heard. And that it was this thing called HLH, which I still can't really say the whole name. And um, they changed my course of medication immediately. And I started turning the corner. They gave me chemo. They gave me steroids. They, you know, all these things that they changed. And I started to get a little bit better, which is the first time I'd done anything except for get worse. So they were really visionary there. The treatment for HLH is a year's worth of chemo, which they knew that would kill me 100%. Like I'm not going to survive in the condition I'm in. So they gave me just enough chemo, and when they saw me starting to get better on my own, they basically, in my mind at least, simplified it to, it's on you now. So we started on this journey, and uh, 
I got better and it was terrible. I lost 50 some pounds. Obviously, I, I couldn't talk. I remember, you know, trying to call Steve and, you know, I hadn't spoken to him and everybody had to leave me in Washington. So the whole industry who I'm close with and they're with me, they got on planes and flew back to LA and, you know, left one of their soldiers behind. And particularly for Steve, that was difficult. So I really wanted to talk to him and I couldn't speak. I couldn't make any sounds. My hands and feet were both purple at this point on their way to black. And so, you know, Jennifer would put the phone up to my ear and I couldn't talk so I was whispering <laughs> and finally you know Steve's trying to, I can hear him perfectly and he's trying to be so sweet you know <laughs> he's trying I know because I know he loves me and he cares about me but he's trying to be so sweet and I know it's just frustrating trying to talk to me so finally it's like I can't hear a fucking word you're saying <laughs> you're like yeah well, I was good because like life is still out there yeah, for me you know yeah, it's yeah, not like yeah. everything has been Nothing's lost really changed. and um you know so and all the way up till today it happened in January of 2015 so here we are sitting in wow. September January 2015 so yeah. we're two and three quarter years later mm-hmm. yeah and Jennifer you know obviously and now you're married yeah we got married the day before I got my leg amputated so it was an amazing honey yeah, a huge had. wedding. Yes, four people. Four people. <laughs> 38 seconds. Our lawyer, Richard, who's an amazing guy, he had this beautiful speech written. And I, I was in a wheelchair and both my hands, in, you know, I didn't have hands, I think, or they were still wrapped up. You know, I said to him, get rid of all of it. Say only the words that the state requires you to say. And that's it. Because I couldn't, I could not sit outside. I just, we didn't want any of that. Our relationship was so amazing already that for have somebody infusing a bunch of words about unrealistic, you know, Mm -hmm. just not even germane to our relationship at all. You're so far beyond that. Yeah, we're so far beyond that. We had been through so much and jennifer's you know she's a hero i mean there's i that isn't just coming from me like every single doctor like she went on rounds every day she became a doctor and you know like in the hospital she knew everything she would ask them questions like about things that you'd have to go through med school you know she just became such a part of it and here's this poor woman who when you tell somebody you're my medical power of attorney it sounds like such a romantic thing until it's true right and here she is saving my life you know she had to make the decision about I was too weak for surgery, but they needed a lymph node and they did surgery in my room in ICU. And Jennifer is the one that had to give them permission to do it because they said anything could happen here. You know, there, there was a lot going on that I wasn't aware of, but I did know one thing which is, is that every time a doctor or a nurse or medical professional or the respiratory people walked in the room that I needed to do my best to be me because I wanted them to root for me. I wanted them to feel you know, that this was a worthwhile thing because as I found out, you know, from one of the doctors, he said, you were just young enough and so fit that we were even interested in trying to save you right. because mm-hmm. there's no reason that you should be alive. And so every time they would come in, I would I would try to sit up and I would try to, yeah. I, they would see you trying. Yeah, see me trying. And, and even them. though I couldn't do what I do now, which is to speak about it, like they could see like I had uh, resistance bands tied to the bottom of my bed. Like the second day I was out of my coma with black hands or purple hands and I would try to put them on my arms and see I could lift them because it's very cruel the way the you know it works because if you go in a coma your body eats all your muscle 
so you wake up fat. And I'm like, it should be the opposite, uh, yeah. right? I mean, eat my yeah. fat. I wake up ripped and it would, yeah. you know, that would have been different. But, you know, I basically at that point, because I had so much muscle on me at the time and it was all gone, I looked like a Christmas tree. I just, things hanging down. It was awful. It like, not only did it take away, you know, my health, it also took away my strength. So I did something I think was very important and I'd recommend it to anybody who goes through something like that, which is I never looked at myself in the mirror. I never saw my face because I knew the person that I was on the inside could fight anything but i didn't want to see somebody else in the mirror who wasn't quite as capable because i knew mm. this was it like this was the challenge the fight of my life and to get better and to be better and, and you know be there for my daughter and have you know my life with jennifer and be there for the people that i love like this was the work i had to do and so i didn't for like three months i didn't really see myself and they were feeding me by a tube you know for so long and it was weird because they'd bring in the chocolate one and they were feeding me by a tube i couldn't taste it but i was like oh my god it's chocolate day <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing you how know? long were you in that hospital i was in icu for about 71 days i think wow but while we were there so you know i met incredible people not just and my team started growing and we only had one thing in mind which is just like almost anybody your profession my profession anybody there are the have to's and the want to's and the when you're in that situation you only want to be with the want to's mm -hmm. you don't want a doctor who has to be there or a nurse who has to be there right. you want the ones that want right. to be there and so when i identified the have to's i would get rid of them i immediately just i would just say i can't it's great you're an amazing person not for my team right i needed people who could not only feed me the energy but who could feed off of my right. will and i found you know we put together this amazing team came together and they were all in it i remember you know like i had this thing called a swallow test that there was testing me to see if i could eat and it was so important to me it's probably the only test i've ever had in my life that i didn't think i could get an edge by just putting my <laughs> mind to it you know like you either swallow or you don't yeah. and i failed the test and everybody was horribly disappointed because i wanted chocolate milk because mm -hmm. of the little glass that was in my you know it was like, yeah, I want, I drank like 300 gallons of chocolate almond milk after that was <laughs> over. But the next time, like a few days later, I got to have my swallow test again. And it was almost like a scene out of Rudy. Like they kept coming in, everybody, the nurses, the doctors, oh the administrators, the everybody. My room was like standing room only for this test. Oh. And I passed it. And oh. it was like, it was like an uproar. <laughs> yeah, it was like this uproar. It was like Mardi Gras in my room. And, you know, it was so exciting. And I just felt their love and you know the, and they wow. felt mine and i think it was a real message to me and i think it should be a message to others even though i don't compare my experience to anybody else's that you know they're human beings the doctors and they want to feel like you're in it with them right. that you yeah. are helping them that they have a reason that your life is one that can be a part of their lives for the rest of their lives right. and that is what happened so i ended up leaving washington i think mostly to get answers about how did you get home well we went to mail clinic on a private right. you know That's and right. they were amazing also very scientific like i was on a blood cancer floor because they thought that that maybe that was what i had and i heard these people in so much pain and so much sickness and i was getting better and they were getting worse and it was i mean it's just such a perspective that you have yeah. about where you are because people might look at me and say oh if that ever happened to me i'd grow up in a ball and die but i saw the people who were curling up in a ball and die and it's a lot worse than what i was doing and i you know felt for them what was your state then? You, you mentioned that your hands and feet had gone blue and were moving towards black. 
I was able to see, you know, from my chest down. I was able to see my hands. I was able to see my feet. I could see that they were purple turning into black. Mm -hmm. And I could also see that the black was still climbing Mm. because you know originally when i had spoken to somebody there they said the possibility is it'll take both of your legs at the hips both of your arms at the shoulders your nose and your ears so i'm extraordinarily fortunate that that's not the case so you know when i saw these things i said that's impressive Mm -hmm. because it is impressive Mm -hmm. you know my body saved me by killing things that were Mm -hmm. not essential Mm -hmm. And it wasn't going to do me any good to be like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, there was work to be done. And I saw them and I knew what was happening. And Jennifer immediately jumped into action. And she knows that I'm an avid, avid tennis player. And she said, you have to save his hands and feet. Yeah. You know, in the most remedial, but most honest way she could. And um, they brought in a team, a limb preservation team that was brand new. It was headed up by Dr. Vicki Shamagan. And this was at... At GW, GW still. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So very early, she, she understood what to talk about with yeah. them in a way. She understood the essence of who you are. I think the amputations were and are shocking. Yeah. You know, that that's not something, you know, that unless you've gone through it, you really cannot imagine. I certainly couldn't have beforehand. But the idea of that happening while you still have those limbs and you still have hope, that's a very treacherous period of time because hope has done some amazing things for us. But there is a point in time when you have to come to grips with the idea that you're going to lose some stuff. Yeah. And um, I never looked at it and said, oh, what was me about it? Yeah. That wasn't, I think the idea was to try to stop all of this from continuing because I have, you know, small scars even on my neck where the darkness was trying to Coming. take me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Dr. Vicki Shamagan and her team got me into the hyperbaric chamber in D.C. where I had this technician named Robert. It's like being in a coffin made of glass yeah. and it's 100% pure oxygen, but it's also extraordinarily claustrophobic. Yes. And I'm not claustrophobic, but you can't help it. Yeah. You're there, you're isolated, you're sick, your hands and feet don't move, you're you know barely hanging on to your life and here you are in for over an hour and a half stuck in this thing that looks like a coffin and your perception of everything is strange. Robert, who runs that for GW Hospital, he would stand next to me the whole time. He would just stand there with me. There were multiple people that were doing this and other machines, but he w- he knew, yeah. you know, that I was in real trouble. Yeah. And even though I was strong and I was ready, that it was a lot to endure. So he held the space with you. He and, did. He yeah. put his hand on the machine and he yeah. stayed with me and I could hear him through the glass yeah. or, you know, whatever it was. And um, he would talk to me and tell me we're almost done. He mm-hmm. would give me almost oh, like boy. being an athlete, you know, like, you know, if you can just survive this for whatever, if you're in survival mode that's a good thing to know so he didn't just leave me and be like whatever he stayed with me and he was great so they kept putting me in hyperbaric chamber as much as they as i could handle and i completely feel that it saved all the things that are still left on me it stopped the progression of all those things and we tried to do it. It was very difficult for me, but everybody, Jennifer and her parents and my sister and everybody knew that it took the most mental strength for me. Now, there are a lot of people who can go in there and be fine because you can do stuff in there. If you can read, you can do whatever, but I couldn't do anything because I had no hands and feet and no way to do it. And I wasn't very healthy. And so for me, it was like a, it was a mental, you know, uh, journey. And so they'd send me out there. And then when I get back, yeah, they're awful places. That's yeah. You- but also great, you know, and, and they're so great worthwhile. And they're helpful, but they're creepy to get into. They are. And uh, 
when I would get back, Jennifer's mom and I always ate super healthy. I never drank, smoked. Like I've never done drugs. Like I don't do anything. I trained every day. You know, I and my life was as clean as I could make it. So now I'm on all these drugs and my brain has left me to some extent. I'm still holding it together. And the people there were just, you know, really great. But Dr. Shamigan, they put special equipment on me that was very uh, trial based. And um, they did a great job in stopping the advancement and also to try to save and make better anything that it was possible to save. I've seen you play tennis, so I know you have preserved your ability to grip a racket with my transplant hand i can yeah Yeah. when we got out of there i had one of the most amazing moments of anybody's life actually so it's 30 some days later you know dr lynn abel who was emergency icu i hadn't seen her very often if at all and dr seneff and her husband dr abel so everybody comes down to say goodbye to me when they know that i'm leaving so i'm in a different room and everybody comes down the president of the hospital and everybody who has just you know rallied around me so well and they all come down they bring me gifts and everything you know scarves and hats and gw this and that and then uh, dr lynn abel waits and everybody else leaves and she comes by my bedside and like you know to me in my mind she was my worst you know adversary because <laughs> she was you know she and i had had a pretty tough time of it and she was so stone cold about it that i was like man like you know who forced her to come down here she came by. I didn't know if she was going to try to snuff me out. I don't know what she was going to do. Um, <laughs> After but, all that work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, she came by my bedside. And she held my hand. And she, you know, had tears in her eyes and rolling down her face. And she said, you know, I've never seen anything like you. Wow. You know, I, she said. I saw the photos of when you went back there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it was like, here's this woman who's just, you know, so scientific and such a doctor and like, I didn't experience the more human side of her. And, you know, we cried together. And, you know, she said, you changed the way we feel about being doctors and what we do here. And, you know, obviously I felt the same way about them and was able to communicate with her a little bit about it. And, you know, she said something to the extent of, do you have any questions or whatever? And I had never asked a single question about anything because I'm like, you tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to do whatever it takes Mm -hmm. to get better. You know, I said... I don't really understand. Like, if this is the one time I can say something, like, I, I don't understand. I live my life in the most clean and healthy way that of anybody that I've ever come in contact with. I am the one who did all of those things. I trained so hard and, you know, I pushed myself to the limits. And I said, I just don't know why something like this would happen to me. And she changed my mind, which is a hard thing to do of a 49-year-old man who's been through the things I've been through. And she said, well, you didn't do those things so that this would never happen to you. You did those things so you could survive this happening to you. And it changed my mind because I was like, well, wait, you know, you think you're doing all these things so that bad things don't happen to you. But the truth is, is that you do these things because you are prepared for anything. You're ready. You build yourself up into the kind of person that can handle anything. And when anything came by, I was ready. And she, yeah, and she changed my mind about that. And she also changed my mind for the future, you know, and it's a lot about what I've been out speaking about, which is don't outrun the bear by one step. Run as hard and as fast as you can so that you have room in your life to make good decisions and you're not just always trying to barely get by. You're not doing the very minimum, the very least that you can do. You're doing way more than that because you have no idea opportunity-wise or challenge-wise what's in front of you. And so she helped me, you know, there. And then we went to Mayo 
I was too healthy um, after a while at Mayo, so they couldn't keep me in the hospital because of insurance, but I needed to stay there because they had a hyperbaric chamber that's, you know, second to none in the world, I think. It looked like a giant submarine, and there were a lot of people in it, but of course I was still in really bad shape, and hands and feet were wrapped. I couldn't do anything. I was on a gurney. There were people up doing crossword puzzles and all that stuff, but you were in a submarine, much the size like maybe of this room. I've already got some captivity issues based on what happened to me in my coma nightmare. And in this particular thing, they come in and they put a metal collar around your neck and then they put a plastic hood over your entire face and they snap it to this tight metal collar. And it's like everything that your life tells you not to do. Don't stick your head in a plastic bag. Well, it's in there and there's a small pipe in there where they pump in the 100% oxygen that you're getting, which is incredibly helpful to getting better. But it's a holy war every time. For somebody like me, it was a holy war because I couldn't move. I was trapped. I was hot. It was po- I was pouring sweat you know, because my body was working so hard inside this thing, which felt like it was filling up with, you know, and and it was just a, a maddening experience. But I settled into it. I made my mind strong. I was fierce in my protection of the opportunity to go in there because I knew that it was doing so good. The first time I did it, I felt I said to Jennifer that it felt like God was passing through me. You know, it's such an incredible feeling to have that much oxygen and, you know, it mm-hmm. makes you feel so much better. But I made it 28 times, which wow. is a lot, pretty much daily. Wow. Um, but I was too healthy to stay in the hospital during some of it. So they put me at a skilled nursing facility. And if I don't do anything else in my life, I will figure out some way for the people who are in those places not to suffer the way that they do. Because forget me, but I got there and I saw what that is, that skilled nursing thing. And that's where people drop off their parents to die. And it's awful. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. I was so, you know, and I don't even have a temper, but it was the first time my friend um, Joel and his wife Colleen where they came to visit me the day that we were being transferred and they took me to a room that was the size of this couch and I lost my mind. I'm like, I I cannot stay here. Like my whole recovery is based on the idea that I can do the things I need to do to be healthy. Like you can slide back into the sickness so quickly if you're not, you know, in the right circumstances. And I knew I couldn't stay there. Luckily, Jennifer was there and she went exploring and she found a different kind of a setup that we were able to get. But what I experienced there was some of the worst. I've been to some of those places. It's awful. The worst. I mean, it was it was so bad. So one night, really late at night, my daughter was there. We had two beds in the room and my daughter was visiting me and we were having the most amazing time, you know, like the kind of daddy daughter time that nobody gets because this circumstance puts you together in an unusual way and we were ordering all this food I couldn't eat any of it but we were just ordering all this food and you know we were having ice cream in the middle of the night and we stayed up all night watching Family Guy and you know like we just had this and we talked so much I would not give those four days away for anything but in the middle of the night one night I had a panic attack and I've never had a panic attack before. I didn't really even know what was going on, but I couldn't move. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get out of bed. I was absolutely held hostage there by my circumstances. And now I was panicking. And I mean, like, I don't know if you've ever had one or not, but I could not manage the feelings that went along with um, having a panic attack. So I, I pushed the button and 10, 15 minutes later, somebody came in who was just an aide 
and I explained, I was very calm and I explained, you know, because the worst things are the more calm I get. That's just my nature. So it was really bad and that's exactly how calm I was. And I said, I need, you know, the nurse to come in. And so 25 minutes, a half an hour later, oh the nurse comes in. My heart feels like it's beating 200, you know, beats a minute if more, or if not more. Ariana's, you know, she doesn't know what to do. She calls Jennifer, you know, and Jennifer comes right down because she's staying in an apartment above where I was. She comes right down and everybody's there with me. And then the nurse comes in and goes, well, there are no doctors here, so I can't prescribe any, I can't give you anything. And I travel with Xanax for the plane in case I need it, which I never take. I've had the same bottle forever but it was in my backpack and it was sitting like in my closet right there and she's like well I can't give it to you and there's no doctor here so I'm going to have to wait until I can get a hold of somebody long story short it goes on for two hours I mean it's literally like having you know being hooked up to your car battery with jumper cables to your heart for two hours and I was exhausted and you know it was agonizing in every way because of what the other things that were going on with my limbs and watching my daughter have to suffer and all those things so the next time I got into the hyperbaric chamber, they woke me up at halftime. They give you a break and take your hood off at halftime. And she scared me and I had a panic attack. And so they had, that's difficult. You're 105 meters below sea level. So they can't just open the door and let you out. They have to bring the whole thing up. There are other people in there. So they have a separate room that they can bring you into, but it takes a long time to bring you up because so you don't get the bends. And, you know, so you're having a full panic attack and you're underwater 105 meters. You know, it's just the whole thing was terrible. So I thought, this is so important. I can do it. That was an anomaly. And I went back the next day and I had a massive panic attack at halftime when they woke me up and they had to take me out again. So I said, okay, that's it. So I told Jennifer, like, if we're not here for this, what are we here for? Ariana's birthday is in like a little while. Like, let's make a run for it. And uh, so (laughs) we plotted an escape. (laughs) And uh, it's it did not make people happy. Humor. Yeah. yeah, no, we plotted an escape. And uh, and I said, you know, Jennifer's dad flew to Rochester. Jennifer bought a wheelchair off of Amazon um, that was delivered to the hospital. And she and her dad put it together. You know, we planned to full on. So we told them tomorrow at two o'clock. And they're like, absolutely not. You cannot go. I said, tomorrow at two o'clock, they're coming to pick me up and we're going to go and we're going to go to Los Angeles. I need to be home now. It's enough, you know, that I've been away. So they immediately, there were three doctors in the room. I hadn't seen a doctor the entire time I was there. But when I did that, everybody showed up and none of them could stop me because by then my brain was back to normal-ish. So they got all my medication together. They got everything they possibly could. They acted in a superhuman fashion to get us ready so that there weren't any issues when I left, which was amazing that they were capable of that based on what I had seen previously. And, um, you know, so... We did it. Two o'clock. There's an amazing picture of me with no hair, my hands and feet wrapped, sitting in the front of this escape van with, you know, in a, in a wheelchair on our way out of Minnesota. And did you drive home or fly home? No, I flew home. It was quite an adventure. That's why Jennifer's dad was with us, you know, because we bought, you know, the whole first row so we could have as little difficulties as possible. But it was horrifying. I mean, I've never seen anybody on the plane even remotely in the condition that I was. And the fact that they let me get on a plane and, you know, I look like I was dead. So it was like weekend at Bernie's between Jennifer and her dad, like, you know, <laughs> trying to get me on the plane. But we did it and we had a, you know, a van uh, to transport us back home. And, you know, we came home and uh, 
late or April, early May after being gone from January. Did you have a team of people who you were coming back to in L.A. or did no. you have to build your team or what? There was a, a doctor at Mayo Clinic named Dr. Stephen Moran. We had talked to him about hand transplantation while we were there. And I was scared to leave because I didn't want to break up with him because he was so great. Mm. And I, I, they have a whole funded program there and they've never done a hand transplant. So I felt like I was a pioneer, you know for them and they had done so much for me like okay but then you know jennifer made it clear like we need to go home and it's okay he's a doctor he's not gonna you're not breaking up with a girlfriend like we're just gonna go yeah yeah <laughs> so we i sheepishly told him and he said oh my gosh he goes you know the greatest hand surgeon in the entire country who's my mentor is at ucla in your backyard and i'll call him for you and his uh-huh. name is dr cody azari now he's jennifer an amazing guy had already done the research about doctors and stuff and she told me before we went in there if this guy says the name cody azari that's our guy and sure enough we're sitting in the meeting and he says cody azari so (laughs) you know we're locked and loaded like we're on our way back and i thought it was going to be amazing to be home i really did i was excited about the possibility it was some of the worst days i've had in my life surprisingly was to be home be in an environment where things used to make sense and now they don't. Um, when you're in a hospital, you can make sense of them in a different way. And I had a really tough, tough, tough time, strangely. Um, it was one of the times where I felt most dented by the experience. And then about three days after that, we were at UCLA and I was sitting in this room in this wheelchair slumped over looking like I had been you know, beaten relentlessly with a baseball bat for the last you know, two years. And um, Dr. Azari and Dr. Siren, who took care of my legs, they came in and they met with me and we had already thought to ourselves, well, we're going to have hand transplant. And so when we get in there, you know, I'm overzealous about everything. So... <laughs> You know, he's talking to us. He's looking at me like, there's no way, you know, with this guy. I mean, if you've heard him interviewed, he's like, there's no way. I mean, you know, the condition I'm in and whatever. But I'm like, so do you guys have hands here? Do I get one now? You know, like (laughs) um, not really understanding the process so much. And he's like, slow your roll, Jonathan. So it was something to work towards. And he said something really important to me, which was, I can't even talk to you about this until you get all of your amputations, which I have amputations on all four of my limbs. I lost all of my toes and my left foot. I lost my right leg below the knee. I lost my entire left hand and I lost the half of each one of my fingers on my right hand. So he said, we can't do anything until you get all of that necrotic tissue off of you. You get healthy and you walk. So when he said that, you know, I felt the spirit of, you know, okay. Like I felt the Rocky of it Rocky all. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I felt that. I'm like, you knew the rules of the game. You knew the, yeah. He told me what I needed to, to do. And I knew that. So no disrespect to anybody, but PT and OT people typically speaking live by a very strict code that they have to, you know, for safety purposes and all those other things. But it was driving me crazy. So I said to Jennifer, like, I can't have any of these people here anymore. I can't do it. They're great. They're professional. I can't have them they want me to sit on the edge of the bed and breathe deeply three times like that there's no rocky in that <laughs> so i jennifer used to work for beachbody who makes the insanity workout which is you know the spirit of my life and has been for way before i was sick like i found a workout that matches my life and i do it relentlessly with my friends and we've been doing it a long time 
And she got a job there because it was such an amazing company. And so she called somebody over there and they introduced us to this guy named Scott Seller. And they told him that one of their friends needed a little bit of, uh, you know, tr- uh, physical training. Oh, my God. They understood. They didn't it. say anything. Really. They didn't say anything. <laughs> so he walks in and he sees me. I'm like, <gasps> you know, um, and he's, you know, six foot seven, 280 pounds. He's just like, you know, great looking guy. He's just like the whole world is his, you know, oyster. And here he's looking at me like, what are you? But I said to him, you know, Scott, you just have to forget about all the medical stuff. Like I'm in a wheelchair. I'm on 280 milligrams of morphine every day. Like I'm not well at all. A lot of terrible things are happening. I have no control over anything in my life or anything in my body, but I'm sitting in a wheelchair and we're starting to quote unquote train. You know, we're starting to use his body weight just to, you know, I couldn't hold anything. Obviously I didn't have hands and now like it was just, we found these ways, these clever ways. And he was so like on board with me and he's so, you know, like you and I have like the connection was immediate because when Jennifer showed me his picture, he was a, he used to be like a fitness model and he's wearing these little pink, you know, bikini briefs and he's shredded out of his mind. And I'm like, absolutely not. I don't want anything to do with that guy. Um, but she said, just try. So he came over and, you know, not only is he someone who I spend a lot of time with training, but he's also our family now. We used to come up with these crazy things when Jennifer was gone to try to get better, faster, like climbing up the stairs with, on my elbows and knees, like for speed, yeah. <laughs> you know? So he'd be Ta-da! like timing Yeah, he'd be you. timing me. He'd be like, dude, yeah. you know, he's known as good job dude around our house because that's his, you know, <laughs> option. Job. Like, good job, dude. <laughs> but we trained out of a wheelchair and we, you know, we did everything you could. And I told him, if I can't walk by the day that my leg is ready for a prosthetic, we are done. So we studied, we learned about all the muscles you know systems and all the things you need to walk and we trained them in every possible way that you could and we went to ryan russell my prosthetist and he put my first test socket on my leg and i walked on it and everybody there said they've never seen that before the first time the first time i said i didn't walk great by the way i was suffering and it was so so promoted the first time i did and um you know so i was proud of scott and you know proud of what we accomplished together and you know those kinds of accomplishments they feed the energy of all the people around you who are thinking we can do anything and we did and you know within three weeks of that i had a running leg and i went out and tried to run you know uh doing 100 meter dashes on the football field at calabasas high school and it was awful and you know the searing pain was just i remember it so well but it felt so great to do it you know and uh, it was way too early to do it but, but there you were doing it anyway. i did it didn't help yourself <laughs> started walking and then we went through a battery of tests that you have to go through about hand transplantation or any transplantation some of them were very challenging and frightening but i passed every one of them and we found ourselves on the list which we were on for i think eight uh nine months something like that and i promised that i would go back to work a year from the day that i got sick i promised myself that and i promised steve that and so i was in no condition to go to work but i had gone back to work in that january of the of 2016 and you know so i was trying to put the pieces of my life back together again and a couple of times when I was at work, I'd get a call from Dr. Azari saying, you know, be prepared. We're ready. We have a donor. We have some more things we have to check out, but be ready. And then ultimately, 15 minutes later, he would call me and say, it's a no-go for whatever the medical reasons were or background checks or whatever happened. So when he actually called me the day that my hand transplant was ready for real, 
I didn't really think much about it because I had already been through the drill a few times, you know, and you go through this sort of crazy dichotomy in your feelings, which is you're excited because you know that something great's going to happen to you, but you're sad because you know that somewhere something terrible right now is happening to somebody else. And that was very difficult to manage because, you know, that's not something I would trade. You know, I, I would rather suffer myself than have somebody else suffer. So it's hard to feel good about that and so it was almost like an old 1950s pregnancy scenario where we had the suitcase ready and it's under the bed and you know you get the call and it's like <laughs> right. you know so we were supposed to be at the hospital the next morning at i think 10 a.m or 9 a.m and obama was in town oh, yeah. and yeah well we were yeah. 45 minutes late to my own hand transplant and we can't do anything. So we're calling the hospital. Dr. Azari's, you know, down meeting with the donor family and going through that whole process. And, you know, they've got a helicopter on call for him because the longer the hand <clears throat> goes without a blood supply, the more um, deterioration there is. And, you know, so luckily things worked out, you know, as they do. You go through a lot and then ultimately they things work out. And so, you know, we were there on time. I mean, not on time, but we were there in time for it to be a go. And they started the surgery way before Dr. Azari had brought the hand. They started preparing me in surgery. It was a pretty close to a 19-hour surgery. And there were, there were hundreds of people involved in my life about this hand transplant. There were, you know, I think 17 to 20 surgeons from all over Los Angeles and San Diego and competitive hospitals. Like they had gone through the cadaver process many times in practice, and I got this amazing hand transplant. And you know, Dr. Azari did it in a way that it's never been done before. And the results of that are that on Jennifer's birthday, when I woke up from this incredible surgery, I was able to move my thumb mm -hmm. right away. I felt at that time that this was just another thing that I should focus and concentrate on that required my whole being to be a part of it. It was a very difficult surgery to live through. It was all positive and everybody handled everything perfectly. It's just hard. And it's not, there are less than a hundred of them in the world. So it's not everything goes, that the nurses know even everything to do or that the medical personnel. No, not you're pioneering. This is pioneer work. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just the Chuck Yeager of it all, right? So I'm I'm just flying the hand. They are the ones that made it happen. And, yeah. and you f it feels to me like you really understand what's at stake for them and how up and down it can be for them, too. Well, there were two things that, you know, really struck me about this whole thing. And people always ask me, you know, what do you know that I don't know? Because you've been in this closer to dead than near dead experience. And um, thankfully, in my at least for my way of thinking about it, I put almost all of the pieces of my life back together again, which made me feel really good that even with perspective, I liked the things in my life and I valued them and treasured them and it made me feel good about the life that I had built. But it was a it was a really, really difficult surgery, but the difficult part of it was getting over the idea that something terrible was happening to somebody else while something positive was happening for me. And when I was... When I was 17 years old, my best friend was killed in a car crash instantaneously. And we've been best friends since we were zygotes. And so, you know, I had a room at his house. His parents disciplined me for my grades. Like, we were very, very, very close. And, you know, they parented me in times when I didn't have parents. So we were really, really close. And he was just killed in an instant in a freak car crash and um, small town. So I got the call from one of my friends, not from anybody that hey i think i saw brian's car on the side of the road and 
you know, it didn't look great. So I went to the hospital and, you know, he was dead way before they told us he was dead on impact. You know, just uh, I sneaked back uh, to the see him and I saw his clothes and that was the only thing I could recognize of him. So it was the kind of hole that it left in you so instantaneously. It was like it was just blew a hole in me and I could not heal it. I couldn't figure out like not just the immediacy of it, but I couldn't for an extended period of time even begin to start forming any kind of healing around it. And I just I, I I did crazy stuff. I'd get into crazy amounts of exercise. I'd run so far that I'd end up at a farmhouse and I was too far from home and knew, didn't know where I was. And I have to, you know, I had to call and see if somebody could come and get me. My just my mind was just, you know, unable to start. And then it just came to me in a moment. It's like. I'm going to take the life that Brian can't lead, and I'm going to take it into my own life. I'm not going to do this in honor of him. I'm going to take the life he can't lead. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to live for both of us, you know, going forward. And it was almost instantaneously where the healing began, and it was fast. And I was like, I felt motivated and inspired, and, you know, and times when I didn't think I could do something on my own, like, I felt like I could do it for both of us, you know. So when I got my hand transplant, I had had that experience and I had to do the same thing. I'm like, I can't make sense of this. I can't make sense of such an incredible gift and but such a tragedy that happened to a young person that isn't supposed to be dead and that they are. So I've decided, you know, that that's how I'm going to treat this too. So, you know, when I exercise, I do one extra for whomever it is that this person is. I don't know who they are, but I do one extra of everything. I, I did find peace and healing in this idea that I could do something for both of us that he no longer is capable of doing on his own. And that gave me peace. Wow. It's been a tremendous amount of work, not just for me, but, you know, every day, you know, at the beginning for six hours a day with rehab for a long period of time. And as I got better, it's declining. I still have quite a bit of work ahead of me. But, you know, I, I have figured out a couple of things. And one of the things that I figured out happened when I went back to Washington to meet all of those doctors and 2020 was there to shoot the whole thing, which is fine. Maybe wasn't exactly, you know, the right thing for that kind of a situation, but I didn't really know that situation because I didn't know those people very well because I was in a coma a lot of the time. So there were some people I knew and some that had stayed in touch, but I didn't know. So I thought, well, this is going to be strange. I'm going to go to Washington and they're going to be three people that I meet that I remember and it's going to, why would they want to shoot that? And I don't know, you know, I'm just one patient out of the zillions that they've oh, seen. Well. So I, we go back there and I had told uh, Dr. Sham again, don't worry about me on the day that I left Washington. I'm going to come back here one day. I'm going to walk in here in a brand new suit and tie and I'm going to show you the, you know, the person that I was before you met me. So David August, who's a guy who makes suits, like, you know, he, and he's incredible. He was kind enough to come to me and he developed like these suits that were specific to what ails me. So I have these beautiful suits with a zipper on the inside of the leg that goes all the way up to my thigh so I can put my prosthetic on and then zipper it down and you can't see it at all. And my buttons are actually snaps, but they look like buttons and all the places where my pants come together, my they're all magnets, so I don't have to handle them. They just snap together. So, you know, we put on the suit, and Jennifer, of course, always looks beautiful, and we go back to this hospital, and, you know, we walk into this room, and there are 40 or 50 people there, and they're giving me this crazy standing ovation, and it, my, just, my mind just got so confused. I'm like, well, wait, I'm here to say thank you to them. 
Like, why are they acting this way? And it was kind of overwhelming. And plus, I didn't know a lot of the people and I was scanning them and trying to find them. And I didn't want to give a speech because even though I did that for the hand transplant team, ABC was shooting this. And I wanted to make sure that I it was taken in the context in which I said it. So I just was standing there. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, kind of the same way things have in the past. I'm like, I'm not just here to say thank you to them for saving my life. I'm here to show them the life that they saved because that is what means mm-hmm. something to them, right? I mean, they are for me, yes, but, you know, when you have to do that every day and people on, you know, floor six at GW die a lot and these people are superhuman in their efforts and they're selfless and they, you know, they stay up all hours of the night and they sacrifice their families and they do all these things and they never get to see the good parts because the good ones don't come back right and certainly to see somebody in the condition i was and then to see me in the condition i am you know and as they left so many of them validated that by saying i'm gonna go back to my job with like it's the first day i've ever done my job today mm-hmm. because it feels so good to see you and wow. to, you know yeah. so those are ways in which you know i feel i can continue to contribute is to it's like you gave them a moment to really have wonder like to to really sort of not only just to see the end result but to to be able to know that every moment that they spend putting themselves into their work it's worthwhile it's worthwhile and i think that the the add-on to that is and this is really incredible is is that they now know as i do what they're capable of right Right. I know what I'm capable of and I feel stronger and more fearsome today because my tolerance level, the way that I deal with adversity is so gigantic because I have been to the brink and back. And so, yes, things seem a little bit different to me now. They seem a little less important to me in some ways, you know, a little bit more in perspective, I would say. And I do think that's something you get from something like this, a life-changing event like this. But, you know, to see the fire in those doctors' eyes and for them to know, having nothing to do with me, what they're capable of, the same way I know what I'm capable of, you know, to me, that means the world. And that means that other people are going to get the benefit of that. Yesterday, I got a call from one of the main doctors at GW who said, I just want to tell you and Jennifer what just happened. Said, I got a call this morning in the morning. There's a doctor in Illinois who's got a three-year-old girl who is dying, who's, I mean, dead, gone. It's over with. They don't know what it is. And she is dying. And one of the medical team at the Illinois hospital says, you know, I saw this 2020 special about this guy who had HLH. It seems like a lot of the same things. It's more frequent in peds. So he calls my doctor. They go through the whole process, which took them so long to figure out. They go through the whole process in zero time. They compare notes about biopsies and blood, everything. And they said, it's HLH. Go get it. They changed her entire medical regimen in a moment. And this three-year-old girl survives with no damage and it will be perfectly healthy and she'll never even know it happened. And that's all because of what, you know, we all accomplished together, you know, and that that goes all the way through the line. There is no 2020 if there's not a hand transplant. So, you know, everything, even the doctors that here in Los Angeles and what we've all been through and what my recovery means to people along that chain and means to all the people that they're going to touch in their lives like you know you can find a great purpose in your life Mm, if you think about that yeah your optimism that you bring into every situation is just remarkable i really feel strongly that it isn't being 
about being optimistic or pessimistic, although I know it reads that way. It's really about observing that it is what it is, you know, to understand that and not spend your time wishing that it wasn't that way. If, you know, because I'm not, my hands and feet aren't going to grow back. Mm -hmm. And the way I'm healing, like, I'm not going to wish it away. You know, somebody said, and I can't take credit for it, but I thought it was brilliant. You know, you get what you work for, not what you wish for. And that's such an important idea. And, you know, the overall thing I've been out speaking about that really makes me feel like I have a purpose in my life is to have people understand that you don't have to wait until something terrible happens in your life to prepare yourself. You don't have to wait until something great happens in your life until you prepare yourself. It's your ability to respond to opportunities or respond to adversity. And the stronger you are, you know, and the more convicted you are about that to recognize it and ask yourself, what do I do now? Like, that's the way to do it. Worrying, wishing, all those things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. On the next Say It Forward, you'll meet Freddie DeMann, the music industry's legendary manager who ran the careers of the biggest pop stars, like Michael Jackson. I once had a discussion with Jimmy Iovine, and he said that music was all about the beats, and I always thought it was melodies. And frankly, Michael Jackson taught me that. Mm -hmm. And the last thing he said to me as I was leaving his hotel was, Fred, you better tell your girl she forgetting about melodies. And that girl who forgot about melodies was Madonna. You manage the careers of people who can only be described as pop superstars. Michael Jackson, Madonna, Shakira, Lionel Richie, Billy Idol. Did you work with Dr. John? He always tells people, Freddie was the only guy that fired me. He's also been a film producer, music executive, and was co-founder of Maverick Records. Since leaving the pop music world, he switched careers and moved to New York to produce some of Broadway's biggest hits, including Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen. You won't want to miss it when we rewind to the beginning with Freddie DeMann, who, by the way, really is DeMann, on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 